Well, as I said, this morning I want to try and provide an answer to that question and I hope get out of this pit of negativity and give you as a congregation and myself a real cry of hope and encouragement for us all today. And that's why I wanted you to go to Matthew chapter 4. Now, a little background of Matthew. Matthew, the gospel writer, is that tax collector who Jesus called to himself. And in his gospel, these 28 chapters that make up the book of Matthew, he, Matthew builds this case And here's the overarching story of Matthew. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the one and only Messiah. That's his theme. He's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience and he's saying, listen, Jesus of Nazareth is the savior of the world. He's the son of David. He's the truly anointed king. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of promise. He's the only one who can bring peace and forgiveness and restoration to the world. That's what he's saying. And this passage in Matthew chapter 4 would rank right up there with John 3.16 as one of the most familiar texts. It's the temptations of Jesus. But I would say it's often misunderstood and definitely misapplied. You see, this passage is all too often presented in terms that seem a little warm and fuzzy for me, but it totally misses the point of its meaning. And the tragedy of Matthew 4 is that this is that too many Christians, because they misunderstand it and misapply it, are robbed from the power of the gospel and the right application. So I am submitting to you this morning on this long weekend that the misunderstanding of Matthew 4, 1 to 11 contributes to some of the sinful failures that we have seen in the so-called church today. Now, I want you to know I do believe that a right understanding of this passage, the right application of this passage, will, I guarantee it, lead to a stronger faith in Jesus Christ, a more holy church, and a greater worship of God our Father. But let me read the passage and then make some quick remarks. Let's go to Matthew 4 and notice what happens here. Then Jesus. Now this is after a series of of kind of tests and experience that Jesus has been through all the way back to not only them having to run off to uh, down to Egypt and all these types of things, but here's where we're at. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Now, if you write in your Bible, take note of that. He was led by the Spirit. Jesus didn't just go. He was led there by the Spirit into the wilderness for this reason, to be tempted by the devil. So he didn't fall into this. It wasn't an accident, okay? And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, take that in. I think I'm ready to die when I have fasted for two hours. I think it's pretty ironic that he would say, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. That was the highest part. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Now catch this. Now Satan's going to quote scripture. For he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here is Satan, the theologian. Verse 7, and Jesus said to him, again it is written, 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again in verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain, might have been Mount Moriah, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Now notice verse 11. Then the devil left him. And here is one of the famous expressions of Matthew. And behold. Behold is one of his favorite words. He says, behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And again, if you write in your Bible, underline that because I think this is an ironic statement considering how these temptations started. So I want to first make sure we understand what I think this passage is not and what it is. What this passage is not about is not about you and how you fight off temptation of the devil, which is often how this passage is presented. That's not what this passage is about. It's not a three-step program to becoming a great Christian. This passage is not a secret formula for the success in the Christian life. What this passage is about, this passage is about Jesus. The hero of this passage is Jesus. As Matthew is doing for his whole book, it proves who he is, why he came, and that he was successful. All oh, that you would all cling to this as you get ready to go into your week. This passage is about Satan and his desperation to defeat the Trinity, the Godhead. But more than anything, this passage is about the gospel. It's what Jesus went through. And in this time of both testing and temptation, it's meant to teach and to show us we have a Messiah who is not only perfect, but get this, he knows what we are feeling. He knows our weaknesses. You see, I think a lot of you would go, well, yeah, Steve, I believe that. Do you? Do you really relate to this? When you're going through the struggles you're going through, do you really that Jesus believe that Jesus knows what you're feeling? That he really knows your weaknesses? Remember, the Hebrew sermon writer emphatically said in Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, now notice this, yet without sin. So Matthew presents us the testing of Jesus. And he says the whole time, here is the son of David. That means he is the king. Now, you've got to know in Judaism, all of the ancient sons of the king had to be tested and to prove their right to the throne. That was a rite of passage in Judaism. And so the stage for our drama is set. But notice where the location of our drama. It's in the desert. And the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And that's interesting in itself if you study the Bible. Because all throughout the Bible, the desert is the place of tempting and temptation. Every time it comes up, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. And now here's Jesus. May I submit, he's the new Israel. And he goes out into the desert to fast and pray for 40 days and 40 nights. And see how the Bible is always showing us how Jesus identifies with humanity. He goes out of his way. But I want you to notice something from the passage. Jesus is spirit-led. 
into this cosmic fight. This was, this was uh, uh, ordained, purposed, allowed of God. And the devil is his real adversary. Matthew introduces us to the one who has been behind all of the resistance. You see, in chapter 2, remember, Herod gets angry and he's going to kill all those two years and under. And he quotes and we find out of the wailing in, in Bethlehem because of this. And Joseph and Mary have to take Jesus, this little toddler, and flee off to Egypt. And from chapter 2 and all through chapter 3, it's just been attack, attack, attack. And now we find out who's behind all the attacks. We learn that the devil or Satan is the more powerful and real enemy. Listen to this quote I found. The devil is an intelligent, powerful spirit being that is thoroughly evil and is directly involved in perpetrating evil in the lives of individuals as well as on a much larger scale. He is not an abstraction either as a personification of the inner corrupt self or in the sense of a symbolic representation of organized evil. He is so much more than a little red dude with little horns and a pointy tail and a pitchfork. The devil is the real enemy of God. The devil leads a host of powerful spiritual beings that assist him with one purpose, the rebellion against God's purposes. In Matthew 4, you've got in this passage is really the first public noted display of Satan, the ruler of the year according to Ephesians, to stop the kingdom of God. But notice his motive is really to disqualify Jesus as the human representative for us. That's the purpose. That's why I want you to get what this passage is all about. And there's one thing that you and I must know and understand. It's the difference between testing and temptation. Okay? A temptation, number one, is an enticement to get a person to go contrary to God's will. And every one of you is tempted. We are all tempted. Tempted to sin in all kinds of ways. A test tries to get a person to prove him or herself in their faithfulness to God's will. All right? And yet, if you study Scripture, even when God always brings tests or allows tests in our lives, it is always with the desire for you to learn just how much He's faithful and you love Him. It's never meant just to trip you up and screw things up. And so, we know from James chapter 1, verse 13, that God never tempts us, but we do know that He allows tests in our lives. And you've got to know the difference and it's a very funny thing. I find it fascinating in the lives of the people of the Bible and in my life and in yours, if you think about it, that often when God tests us, Satan is always there to tempt you. When you are facing the test is when temptation seems the hardest and the loudest. In fact, one guy said testing and temptation are like two sides of a coin. And so when God allows tests to show us how much we love him or even to correct us both formatively or correctively, Satan will always come and tempt us to think, God's got it out for you. God has abandoned you. God's mad at you. And so the point of Matthew chapter 4, and this is the big picture. Get this. If you don't walk away with anything, get this. Every human being had failed this test and given into temptation until you get to Jesus.
Adam did. He had one request, right? One law. Don't eat of the law of the knowledge of good and evil, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and don't eat of the tree of life. And yet Adam failed. Moses failed. The nation of Israel failed. David fails. Now Satan comes, the great deceiver, as Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to fast and pray for a long, prolonged period of time. And Satan comes and tempts him. But I want you to see the main point. So number one, get this. In Christ, we win over the temptation of the shortcut. And oh, the Western church needs to learn from this. We live in a fast food society. We believe that all of life can be figured out in a 30-minute sitcom or a 60-minute drama. We believe that as quick as it takes me to drive up to the drive-thru, I should be able to just drive out. And we forget so often. I know in my life, so many people will come to me and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with this, and I want it to be over. And then you walk it, and they think, why can't you just give me two verses like two aspirin and tell me to call you in the morning? And they never realize I went to see my doctor and my doctor gave me that wonderful news when she looked at me and she said, Steve, as she took my blood pressure and she took my body weight index and everything and she said, Steve, I need you to know you're obese. I was like, thank you for the encouragement. And she said, you need to lose 45 pounds. And so my head heard, lose it in two weeks. So I devised a plan by which I could lie and lose 45 pounds in two weeks. And so I near killed myself where I thought I had a heart condition. So I went back to the doctor and said, Doc, I don't understand. I've been working out five hours a day for 10 days. And all I have is short shoulders and ankles and knees. And everything hurts. I had to get my wife to dress me. And she looked at me and she said, how long did it take you to get like this? Well, I guess a while. She said, you think you're going to lose it all in two weeks? My plan for you is to lose about a half a pound a week over the next maybe two years. Two years? Two years? See, I wanted the shortcut. Why do you think you turn on your television after midnight and all you get are infomercials about a pill that will burn the fat away? Is that not systemic of our society? But in Christ, we went over the temptation of the shortcut. You see, all three of these temptations are aimed at the humanity of Jesus. And if you'll notice with me that all three times Jesus responds by speaking out of the book of Deuteronomy. All three quotes are from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7, or 8. And the context of these verses in Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8 is that Israel had been tested and Israel had been tempted out in the wilderness and every time they failed. Every time they botched it. But I want you to look at Satan's attack plan. Notice he's called the tempter. And when he comes, he comes when Jesus is the weakest. Wake up, Christians. This is when Satan comes knocking in your life. My father once gave me this acronym. He said, Stephen, and I think I've used it, halt. Don't make major decisions if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And yet how often do you and I make major decisions when we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. What do you think the world says? Don't go to the grocery store if you're hungry. Go after you've eaten a full meal. Because then the dumb things don't look appealing. Right? If I go to the grocery store hungry, 
Fruit Loops sound nutritious. It's pure sugar. But somewhere on the box it says there's some grams of wheat in there somewhere. And so you start to believe the advertising. And you believe if you eat these beautiful delectable things with some milk, your life will be whole. And you've got to understand what Satan's doing. He'll always get you when you're the weakest. Now, all too often, we don't like to think in terms of Jesus at his weakest, do we? We like to think of God. Or the world today seems to want the humanity of Jesus to be like UFC Jesus. That he's always tough and he's always strong. But here, the Bible shows us when he is his weakest. 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and he's hungry and he's weak. That's why Philippians chapter 2 tells us, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Basically, Paul is saying he was God, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Notice this, even death on a cross. I want you to notice what our passage actually says. It says Jesus made himself nothing. He was in the form of a humbling, in the human form by humbling himself. And I wish that you and I would understand that there's no such thing as UFC Jesus or teddy bear Jesus. Our passage presents a weak, hungry, thirsty Jesus just like you and me. And look at what, again what the devil does. He says, if you are the son of God, speak to these stones so that they become bread. Now, don't get confused by the word if. Satan's not get, getting to Jesus to say, prove that you're the son of God. He's basically saying, since you are the son of God, or we know that you're the son of God, now prove it by helping yourself. Since Jesus is obviously hungry, it would hardly be wrong, wouldn't it, to use his messianic power to feed himself? I mean... Why not? I'm hungry. I'm the creator. I can turn these stones into bread. But folks, you see, Satan is tempting to see whether Jesus will use his power rightly. Power that Philippians says he had voluntarily abandoned to carry out the Father's missions. In other words, he was tempted to get something that isn't wrong the wrong way. Catch that, okay? Things like food or sexuality, or money, or family, or a job, or kids, or marriage, or a degree. Satan tempts Satan to do what we all have had that temptation, to get our priorities wrong, to make the stuff more important than the creator. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. And that's the passage where God tells Israel that they had failed to trust him and his ability to provide, and instead they complained and attempted to meet their own needs their own way. Now, don't tell me you haven't been tested and tempted by that. Where you've had legitimate desires and legitimate needs, and you've longed for things, and you've brought it to God, and you didn't think God was working in your favor or working on your timeline, and so then you decided, no, you know what? God hasn't come through. Now it's up to me to manufacture the results. Oh, listen, every one of you know that you've done this. But notice, Jesus resists any shortcuts. But instead, he waits for God to provide, and he trusts that God will provide, even though he's hungry and, could, and he could actually meet the need. When we get to John chapter 4 in a few weeks, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
You see, in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve gave into the shortcut temptation. What did Satan say? Eat this and you'll be just like God. Okay, I'll do it. Moses did it. Don't strike that stone in anger. But he did. The nation of Israel did it. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Israel demanded its bread, but died in the wilderness. Jesus here denies himself bread and retains his righteousness. I want you to see these, these things that you're supposed to see. Jesus passes with flying colors. Rather than using his power to feed himself, to take the easy way out, to give in to the deception of Satan, he leans and trusts and submits to the will of the Father. Number two, in Christ, we win over the temptation of the spectacular. You see, is that not true in the Western church? We struggle with shortcuts. And then don't we struggle with the spectacular? Aren't we the entertainment culture? Aren't we that? Even in church, how does a church come even up with the phrase of seeker sensitive? Figure out what they want and then give it to them. Only problem with that is everything's got to get bigger and bigger and louder and stronger all the time. You see, Satan could not tempt Jesus to take a shortcut, so he'll try to deceive the truth and twist the truth and get Jesus to display his godlike powers. Now, keep in mind, the plan of Satan the whole time is to get Jesus to use his deity. That's what he wants. Satan takes Jesus up to the highest point of the temple, this overlooked the Kedron Valley, and notice what Satan does. He actually quotes scripture. He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, you got to realize that Satan does leave some words out. Because one of the phrases he misses is to guard you in all your ways. But nevertheless, he quotes the passage word for word correctly. He just leaves out a bit. And his deceit is misapplying the verse into a temptation that basically says, Hey, Jesus, prove to everyone here that you really are the Son of God. Show off who you are. Prove to us your relationship with God. Is that not what the Pharisees and others will tempt Jesus to do over and over again? If your God do this, if your God do this, right up till the thief on the cross, remember? If your God save yourself and us, this is the temptation all the time. But Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You see, Jesus knows that his relationship with God the Father does not need any test to prove it. Calvary Baptist, brothers and sisters, do you know that? Do you realize that you don't have to test Jesus to know that you have an everlasting relationship with him? He's told you, thank you, Mary. I needed that. Jesus knows this. He knows that his relationship with God doesn't need its test. He doesn't need to show off for the world to know that he is the son of God. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter draws his sword to fight and he slashes off the ear of that soldier in Matthew 26, but Jesus once again refuses this temptation? What does he say? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures feel, be fulfilled that it must be so? Hence we got that song. He could have called 
10,000 angels, but he died alone for me and you. You see, Jesus knows in his humanity what he knows in his deity and what every one of us needs to know. God loves me and will take care for me. I will tell you that the older I get and the more pastoral ministry I do, if I could just get people that proclaim to know Jesus to actually believe and live their lives out with, God loves me. God really loves me. Too many Christians walk through life with those white daisies. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. But when you truly get Christ, every petal is, he loves me. He loves me. He loves me even more. He loves me with a great love. He loves me and never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Imagine now, how much better would be picking the things off then? But number notice in number eight, for 810, number three, in Christ, we win over the temptation of power. And again, is this not fitting for the Western church? Shortcuts, entertainment, and power. Is that not what we struggle with in our world today? You see, Satan takes Jesus on this high mountain and he displays all the kingdoms of the world. And notice our passage. And he said to him, all these will I give to you. Now that's ironic, isn't it? He's talking to God, the creator of all things. And yet he says, I'll give you all this if you will fall down and worship me. It's like when children do this. I, when my kids were growing up, my, my, my sons, all of the three of our kids have had paper routes. But when we were in PEI, um, one of them, you know, be snowing out or raining or something like that. And one of the boys would come to me and say, Dad, if you will drive me around, I'll give you $5. <laughs> now, the thing of it was, I had given him the $5 the day before. And it was ironic that my son would come and offer me what was already mine. And say, if you will do this, I will give you this. Right? This is, so here's Satan going, I will give you all these things if you'll fall down and worship me. Notice Satan shows Jesus all the glory of the world, but notice none of the sin. He shows him all the kingdoms. And this kind of reminds me of all of the beer commercials and the sexually suggestive commercials of our world today. I'm convinced of it. I, show me a beer commercial ever where once you crack it, everybody's in shape and it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, every girl on the planet wants to be with you. That is every beer commercial. If you crack it, a party instantly pops up. Yet you never see broken homes, or abandoned children, or abused women, or empty men. You never see that. When has Hollywood ever given you the truth? You see, Jesus came to remove sin. Remember in Matthew chapter 1, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Satan tempts Jesus with the achievement of power. Notice what he's doing. In effect, he's saying, the power you want and came for, you can have it if you just bow down and worship me. Plus, Jesus, I won't make you go to the cross and suffer all that pain and stuff if you'll do just this one little thing for me. Satan, in effect, says, hey, Jesus, here it is, all on your terms, not God's. Why suffer? Jesus is a 100% human being and Satan offers him the world without pain or sacrifice. Just worship me. He offers Jesus humanity without the cross, success without the sacrifice, mercy without justice. Here, have humanity. Oh, 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 oh I forgot. But God's holiness is still going to be profaned. 
But Jesus, once again, quotes Deuteronomy 6. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You see, in verse 10, Jesus now takes charge, and he basically says, go away, Satan. Go away. The old King James says, get behind me. Verse 11 says, and the devil left him. The victory belongs to Jesus. And Satan has only one option, to sulk away. But notice how the passage ends. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Don't miss the importance, okay? Jesus, who refused to summon angels who were at his disposal, is now ministered to by the angels. You see, when you don't take shortcuts, and you don't give in to the spectacular, and when you realize that there's no power you can have that's not more beautiful than the power of God, you get the very thing you need on God's terms, in God's way. Matthew is showing us once again that Jesus is the perfect Son of God. Thus, He's the perfect human representative for all of mankind. Get this, folks. Jesus was victorious where Adam failed. Jesus was victorious where Abraham failed. Jesus was victorious where Moses and Israel failed, where David had failed. Now, think for me about this. What did Jesus do and could he do only because he was God? You see, too often this is what we think. I want to think about what Jesus could do and what only Jesus could do because he was God. Think, take a couple of minutes to think about that question as I clue up. You see, so many of you might think, well, what could Jesus do? Well, I know Jesus could walk on the water. He walked on water. That's pretty cool. But wait a second. Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. Didn't he? Did he? Yeah. What about Jesus raised people from the dead, Steve? Remember Lazarus? But other people in Scripture raised people from the dead too. You may think about all the various miracles that Jesus performed, like multiplying fishes and loaves to feed the 5,000, or healing the crippled, or predicting future events. But all throughout the Bible, people also performed similar deeds. Peter commanded the crippled beggar to walk. Nathan predicted the Messiah. How Elisha caused the widow's oil to multiply. But my friends, there's only one thing that Jesus did for us that no other human being ever did. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been retempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, the tragedy is Many of us spend so much time on Jesus' deity that we almost forget his humanity. We say things like Jesus was born of a virgin and died on the cross and rose again, and all of which is true, but for all of that to have power, Jesus lived for us. Don't miss that. For him to be born and to die and to rise again, he had to live for us. The New Testament loves and teaches both Jesus' deity and his humanity. It declares emphatically his nature in Romans chapter 3, verses 1, 3 and 4. Try to imagine Jesus as a baby in the manger. See, this is, let me, let me play this for you. I think too many of us think this way. Jesus is laying up in the, in the manger in Bethlehem, and he looks up into the sky and thinks, what a wonderful world I have created. I remember when my heavenly father and I discussed creating this world. How beautiful it is. As he lies there, he thinks further. Hmm, I'm hungry and I'm wet. I'd sure like Mary to change me, but poor mom. She's had a rough time of it. 
that donkey ride from Nazareth was tough. So I think that I'll just let her sleep through the night. I'll wait till the morning and eat and then be changed. Or better yet, I'll just get up and get a bottle and change myself. Does that sound even remotely true to anybody? That's what's why I don't agree with that song, Away in a Manger. No crying he makes, really. Listen, folks, I don't know if this bursts your bubble on this long weekend, but Jesus cried. Jesus experienced full humanity. He acted just like any other normal baby. He cried when he was hungry and wet. He slept when he was full and dry. He was dependent on his human mother and father. And although Jesus was fully God, he became fully human with all of the human experience. And he did this for us and he did it perfectly. Now it's true that we face temptation. And it's true that we follow the example of Christ and how he fought against temptation. But Matthew chapter 4 are truths that don't, that are not, these are truths that are not the focus of Matthew 4. In fact, if you get this passage, you'll be much better equipped to withstand temptation. How? By looking to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How do we do this? Looking to Jesus. Remember our video? It's not trying harder. It's training better. You've heard me say it. The gospel is not try harder. The gospel is always believe better. Looking to Jesus. Why? Because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Because Jesus was victorious, we know we are already victorious. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? If you're a Christian, you're not condemned. (laughs) But listen again to Paul at the end of Romans 8. When he asks these questions, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's the question. Here's the answer. It's God who justifies. Then he says, who is to condemn? Who would condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is intercessing for us. And then he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he tells you a list. Will tribulation do it? Maybe distress in your life. What about persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he says, no, 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 no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You want to overcome temptation? Just look to Jesus. Martin Luther got this. He said, it is the supreme art of the devil that he can make the law out of the gospel. If I can hold on to the distinction between law and gospel, I can say to him any and every time that he should kiss my backside. Martin Luther said this in the 1500s. Even if I sinned, I would say, should I deny the gospel on this account? Once I debated about what I have done and left undone, I am finished. But if I rely on the basis of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins covers it all. I have won. Man, are you struggling with purity? (laughs) Look to Jesus. 
Women, are you suffering through discontentment and comparative righteousness? Look to Jesus. Christians, we are all destined for testing. God will often bring things into our lives to show us how much we love him. And rest assured, when that happens, Satan will come a-knocking with temptations to stop trusting him. But then you just come around and remember, Jesus has already run this race. The, The results are in. Let us then, in our passage, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, with all of that, let me see if this verse, which I hear quoted so often, makes a little bit more sense. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice that this says, God is faithful. How do you want to overcome temptation? Go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. Repreach the gospel to yourself. So what do I want you to leave here with, with today? I want you to leave here confident in Christ and not in yourself. You will never overcome sin because you decide to try harder. You'll only overcome sin if you realize what Christ has done for you. I want you to leave here with an urgency to ask God for the filling of the Holy Spirit every day. Can I say again to a bunch of Baptists, let us not, because other people sometimes we think have overemphasized the Holy Spirit, effectively kill the role of the Holy Spirit in our church. Oh, to God that the Holy Spirit would not be grieved or quenched amongst us. If you're going to overcome sin, you need Holy Spirit power. Thirdly, when you sin, run to Jesus. Don't run and hide. Don't run away. Don't make excuses. Just run to Jesus. Oh, and by the way, and when you obey, run to Jesus. Don't be self-sufficient. Don't be proud and arrogant. Because even when you obey, what credit can you take except I trusted better? So, as we go, what can you take practically? Well, obviously, resist the devil. James says so. How do you do that? Preach the gospel to yourself. Stand firm in your faith. Number two, remember what Jesus has already accomplished for you. Stop trying to figure out how you're going to do this. And stop, start meditating on what Jesus has already done. Thirdly, let God's word guide you and protect you. Let God's word guide you and protect you. Folks, I'm sorry. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. It's not just for kids. In fact, if I could just get adults to get that figured out. And I will tell you, as a pastor, at 45, if I read my Bible and pray every day, My life is different. Not my circumstances. My life is different. My attitude, how I handle my circumstances. Jesus walked this earth being tempted by all the things you and I are tempted by, and he was perfect and without sin. You see, listen, when Jesus is the object of your faith and obedience, then you trust not in yourself or in your obedience, but in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him, oh, that you would. 
Jesus became human. He lived the life that you and I could never live to die the death that all of you and I deserve to die. Paid the price you and I could never pay off and offers himself to us freely. Oh, that you would accept him because he truly is Jesus the Messiah and there truly is victory in Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the patience of these people. I thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And I pray again that my friends have heard a much better sermon that I could preach. I thank you for giving me the voice to preach. Lord, I thank you that on this long weekend we can gather together freely and before you. We can be challenged by your word and not discouraged. We can even be reproved and rebuked but not ashamed or feel demeaned. Because you love us and you intercede for us and you never leave us. And everything that you point out in our life is not meant to hurt us, but to refine us. Father God, for the one here that may not know you or is doubting their knowledge of you, may they run to you. For the one who maybe feels like, man, Pastor Steve, I nailed it this week. Would they humbly go to God and say, oh, Father God, what can I brag except Jesus Christ? So, Lord, as we go into a long weekend, and many of us maybe have today and tomorrow off, may we take the time to remember as temptation comes, we don't have to try harder, but believe better. And in believing better, we will train and be discipled in the ways of the gospel. So even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly and speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,